Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has four years of law enforcement analysis experience with 13 years of federal law enforcement overall. He started out in the New York Army National Guard Drug Task Force and now is the Supervisory Border Patrol agent with the Intelligence Unit with the U.S. Border Patrol. He is also currently the chapter president of the Ayalia Anirondack chapter. And he also plays the bagpipes. Please <laughs> welcome Josh Todd. Josh, how are we doing? Great, Jason. Thanks for having me. So how is New York these days? My office overlooks a gem called the Thousand Islands region and the St. Lawrence River. So all is well, 78 and sunny. And right outside my office window, I'm looking at a, a depth about 234 feet in the main channel. And I have some ships that go by on the St. Lawrence Seaway. You can't get any better. Yeah, I was going to say in about another three months, it's not going to be 78. No. Uh. All right. Well, we'll enjoy it while we can, right? Mm -hmm. All right. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? We're reaching back in the mailbag here. I was with the Army National Guard, and I was I got wind of the counter-drug program, which is a national program, but it's it's part of the state National Guard, and leadership controls it at the at Albany level here in New York State. So I got wind of it. I thought it'd be interesting, and I was already with the Border Patrol and wanted to gain some experience that would take me several years. Everything's based on seniority. So I took a break, went to the counter-drug program with the National Guard, and was able to immediately get injected into federal cases and their case management and felony investigations. So that's, that's how I first learned of it, and it was trial by fire. <laughs> I just showed up, and they said, all right, go. But we had some great training. Eventually, they came down the pipe and great mentors. So I had no idea going in the extent of it. But as I said in my interview for uh, the intelligence portion of the Border Patrol, I said it twice during my interview, actually. I used to be an infantryman running and gunning, running through the woods with, with guns. And I ate a piece of bad fish at some point. And now I like analyzing spreadsheets and finding trends <laughs> and geofencing. And I got the job even referencing eating a piece of bad fish twice oh man that is i don't know we do change i don't know why people hold on to this idea that they never change but we certainly do change as we get older that's for sure so so i guess that you all right so you were already in the border patrol so how did you get into the border patrol that was a friend of mine who's still in he's a I actually grew up with him all through high school mm -hmm. when he joined and he mentioned that they were hiring and you would come directly to the northern border, mm -hmm. which like army recruiting was kind of a misnomer because you do actually go down south to the southern border, but it's just a shorter stint. Mm -hmm. So never really considered a job in law enforcement. I was a general contractor prior. And then in 2008, we had everything just died and the work stopped and we were rubbing pennies together. And they he thankfully told me well in advance. And it was a year and a half before the call actually came. And I mm -hmm. said, yes, let's jump at the opportunity. So that's how we got involved. And then we just moved from New York to Texas to Montana and then back to New York. All right. So you were able to come back home then? Yes. All right. Let's just stick with the Border Patrol there for a second. Mm -hmm. So then when you first get into Border Patrol, 
You said you were sent south. What are you doing when you're down south? So as any law enforcement, you start at the bottom and it's all seniority based. So you are working midnight shift in the middle of the dark, chasing uh, aliens through the desert. And we were in El Paso, Texas. So it was quite busy and I got a lot of excitement out of it. It was, it's the infantry of law, law enforcement, as I describe it, because you're, you're out in the woods, you're out in the desert and you're in formation and you're tracking people. <clears throat> so it was a good transition, but you're, you're going and going and going and going and working a lot of overtime because it's, it's just that busy down there. So now are you mostly working at night or more day or all around the car? So as you get more time in and under your belt, you can start bidding for those better shifts, but you do, mm -hmm. you definitely start out working the times that no one wants to work and the days off that don't, nobody wants to have days off. So there's a, a penance to be paid and they make sure that you pay it and you have no holidays with your family and you, you pay a, a price at the beginning, but it starts to slowly and incrementally get better as you, as you stay. Hmm. And so then it, this, is it really, I mean, I, I'm trying to envision this in my head and probably go only by what you see on the news or see in, in the internet or whatnot. So, I mean, is it, is it just, is an idea of it's surveillance, it's security, and you just see folks coming towards the border and you're reacting to seeing them come up to the border. So that is a, a typical Agent A at a, a large station, that's what he's going to encounter. Mm -hmm. But my Border Patrol recruiting bone will kick in and say that, that it's so widespread, the amount of tasks and training and opportunities that the agency has. So we fall under the Department of Homeland Security, and we have customs officers that work at the, the normal ports of entry where people enter and exit legally. And Border Patrol covers everywhere between that on a land or marine border where people are not entering legally. So everyone we encounter... There's a reason they didn't go through the actual port of entry because they have a criminal history or they're in a serenial gang out of Mexico or they have crossed before and been removed. So they have a reason to cross outside of the ports of entry, and that's how we encounter them. Now, the Border Patrol has lots of resources that they throw to this because we have such a large southern border and northern border that's mostly unprotected and unbuilt up. They don't have the fencing and things like that, but we have camera assets, we have ground sensors, we have agents with binoculars, we have forward-looking infrared devices, we have intel agents looking at trends, we have mounted patrols, dismounted patrols. Up here where I'm at, we have Riverine, where we have 25-foot safe boats we go underway every day, and then we have personal watercraft, jet skis. In the wintertime, we have snowmobiles and ice shoes and or snowshoes and skis, you name it. So once you get in the system, you could really niche out and find what you enjoy doing, and, and you could do that for the remainder of your career. Hmm. So what's the turnover rate when you were there? I mean, you said you were down there just a short time, but did people last go staying there with the Border Patrol, or were you? do you see, like, oh, they try it for a little bit and said, oh, this Border Patrol stuff's not for me, I'm out? <laughs> I've met a mix of both. I've mm -hmm. got people that, that want to live outside of their normal, where they grew up, I've got people that work hard to get back to their family and their hometown. I've got people that stay and love the work that they do. And I've got other people that use it as a stepping stone to other federal agencies. It's all in pretty much what their, their goals are. Yeah. Hmm. Now, when you're down south, did you feel, you mentioned all the, the tools and the, the workload that you have or had. Did you feel that you and your team were effective or did you just 
constantly feel that you were just, you know, barely making headway on on what you were supposed to be doing? So this is the the international portion of it, and the leaders of the U.S. and Canada and Mexico stop, you know, ebbing the flow of people coming in. We are there on site, and it's now become more of a collection of people as they come across, processing them and setting up for their their future court date. But as far as detecting, we the border patrol has honed that method of detecting people crossing over the years. Just, just be, it's phenomenal what tools we have to pick up a human body moving through the desert. There are things to be said about a physical barrier, but these guys have years and years under their belt. The new bollards that they built are filled with concrete. If you get a a saw, a reciprocating saw, you can cut through it in five minutes and you're through. So they will find a way to defeat it every time. All right. So then you move on to the north then. You go to Montana. Yes. All right. I think that's interesting because I think most people, I should, maybe I shouldn't say this, you say Border Patrol, they're thinking Southern border. They mm-hmm. don't give much thought to the Northern border. So in Montana, is it the same goal? You're still trying to prevent folks from illegally entering the country or is it a different mission up there? So Montana, and it's a haver sector along the uh, northern border with Canada, that allowed me the chance to have a collateral intel position and really got me a taste of the intelligence and kind of the forecasting element of the Border Patrol and what they do, because it's the northern border in general is much more anticipatory of the trends and it's not, you're not getting barraged with a lot of traffic, you're more building operations, saturating certain areas. And you have more time to plan and, and do some intelligence-led policing. So that's my first taste of it. And I got to see some crossings have no traffic at all, and other crossings would have an influx of traffic. But just recently, there's Mexican citizens that are taking advantage of Canadian immigration systems, flying into Canada without a visa, and then they're actually heading south. So the whole northern the border has become quite red hot as of late. All right. And then, so... With the with the intelligence, with the planning, that so does that mean you're receiving more data? You have more data points to process in order to do your forecast? Data points are hard to come by in the slower areas. And that, I guess it makes sense for every agency. Large cities mm-hmm. will have lots of data. Ours are it's more sparse, but being that it is so wide open where I was in the plains, there's not many border roads that will get you to and from the main thoroughfares. So that made it a little bit easier to plan. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, the operations planning from the, the military side really helped out because we, we have practice in, in setting up that planning and, and it fits right into the Border Patrol process pretty well. All right. So then what what trends were you seeing when you were in Montana? Like as, you, as you're doing the surveillance, as you're seeing the watching the process, what, what were some trends on how these folks were were attempting to come into the country? The largest trend, and I can identify this personally because I grew up going into Canada and back for fries with cheese and gravy for several years <laughs> prior to 9-11 when you didn't have to report. And out in Montana, that system kind of still holds true. People don't think that they should have to report in. That's just the ranchers up there have lived up there since mm-hmm. time memorial, right? So there's an element of that. They have um, some oil fields out in North Dakota, and there's a there's a major route, a major highway that feeds those oil fields from California and Oregon, and that was a huge supplier. So that's the trend we saw when we were up there. 
So wait a minute. So does it continue on to Canada? Because you mentioned it, there's that main highway coming from California to North Dakota. That's it was twofold. So we have people entering just five strand barbed wire to keep the cattle from touching and spreading disease. And we also had drugs coming from the West Coast out to South Dakota and the oil fields. Okay. So you that's so you were the Border Patrol gets into that as well, not just surveillancing the border. It will get into trafficking situations. Yes. Well. We we actually have pretty broad authority within twenty five miles of the international boundary and then a little bit less, but still authority within 100 air miles. So the Border Patrol has quite a mission, and that's all available open source. You can see what we do and, and how we do it. But we are we're quite spread out and have quite a bit of authority in and near that border. Okay. So then with that authority, though, you certainly, there's going to be overlap with the jurisdiction of local government, state government, other federal agencies, correct? Correct. So that always has to be, I'm sure there's times when uh, there's some infighting going on and who's taking what or who's doing what. So I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and say it because we are one of the few sworn law enforcement officers that are on the Intel side and we do analysis too. It is a type A personality and draws those type of people to the job. So (laughs) always walking into those meetings, you're shaking hands and you're dressing people down. So it's, it's always interesting to sit in there and if somebody makes a promotion, they're going to get jabbed for at least a week. We're going to get as much mileage out of that as we can. So, yes, making those liaisons and relationship is absolutely huge because there's information that we have access to and then vice versa. That The sharing inf- information has gotten so much better, even the sense of time that I've been in. But it's just information. It's If it sits and it does nothing, it, it's no good for you. But those fusion centers and crime analysis centers, that's... That's really taken off and and helped everyone in their enforcement. Right. Besides drug cases and the the you know illegal entering into the into the country, what were some other cases that you dealt with while you were in Montana? So Montana was much slower, like you said, than the large built-up areas. But we'll say a typical fiscal year for Border Patrol and Intel. We're dealing with human trafficking, alien smuggling, narcotics, assaults, use of force, deadly force international relations, currency violations, you, you name it, it kind of touches on it all. And when it crosses the international boundary, that's that's kind of where we get involved at the at the sphere, at the tip of the sphere. And then if it gets to ties to other agencies, that's when the other three letter agencies get involved and kind of take the case up. All right. And then so then you make it back to New York mm-hmm. and so it's still the northern border, obviously, but then I guess is what's different compared Montana to New York? So New York is a lot of things, tax-friendly, law enforcement-friendly. They are not. (laughs) But they are waves ahead of the rest of the states, in my opinion, because we've been all over the nation for Border Patrol. And their crime analysis and their intelligence analysis and their fusion centers and their information sharing. I don't know why they've taken that stance and, and opposed other things that would be beneficial to law enforcement, but they, they are, in my opinion, leading the, leading the charge in that. They spend a lot of money and they put a lot of resources into the fusion centers and hiring analysts and collecting data while maintaining that Fourth Amendment right of the citizens of New York, which is something I am also a big fan of. Huh. Yeah, well, I have a brother that owns property in New York. He uh, was belly about taxes. But anyway, that's a topic <laughs> for another day. But in terms of the type of cases, the types of activity you're doing, is it is it the same? Are you were you seeing similar trends? 
So trends in the New York side, the Northeast is obviously a pipeline to New York City and Massachusetts, and we have ties to Maine. We are on the eastern seaboard, so we have a lot more traffic than Montana encountered. But we also have Montreal and Toronto, major hubs in Canada that will attract people to fly into a, a more, I guess, immigration-friendly country and then make their way south with uh, the use of a smuggler. So our geography, and I'm, I'm always hitting on geography because that's my baby, geography allows and, and permits people to either cross by land or by water. So whatever resources they get a hold of, they'll use it. And the fencing and the infrastructure isn't here like it is on the southern border to prevent them from doing it. Now, since you're dealing with so much more traffic, so much more activity, you now have more data points. And is it, does it become more difficult to forecast? It's actually getting easier to forecast. As I said, we have much more analysts assigned than we did out west. And we're now in the intelligence side getting into PLX and the, and the DOMEX, the, the, the digital media exploitation. We have a lot more encounters and we have a lot more data to pull off the people we encounter and in the interviews. And the trend is now, like I said, they're, they're flying into the Canadian side, seeking asylum there. And they're realizing quickly that Canada is very expensive and they're not allowing them to work <laughs> after their asylum expires. So then they are now moving down into the States and hooking up with family who might be in the interior. I gotcha. Hmm. So then you, so then you mentioned getting into more of the, the intelligence side with Border Patrol. And you talked about it developing over time and really becoming more uh, data-driven decision-making going on. Is that something that it's just a, a method that the Border Patrol is developing, or is that a whole new position that where you, you get deemed in the position and now you are doing more intelligence? Yes, it's, a, it's actual promotion. It mm-hmm. is still the same series, but it's a promotional opportunity, and you are vetted for a, a top secret clearance for the intelligence portion. So we're not read into a, a whole lot different than a regular line agent, but we are doing straight in- intelligence analysis. We're no longer uniformed. We're no longer on the, the international border driving around and apprehending people. We're doing the interviews. We're doing the digital media, and we're doing the, the license plate reader analysis, for instance. So it's it's a promotion and it's it's off the line and you're in plain clothes. So it's it's a big draw to, to a lot of people. <laughs> you have bankers hours. <laughs> yes. And some people don't take it just for that because they miss out on the overtime and I Sunday gotcha. thing. I gotcha. So then what kind of data points are you, are, are you looking at other than surveillance? I have been a huge proponent of geography. I preach mm-hmm. geography every time I talk to an analyst or ILEA meetings that we have or for my leadership. And my understanding is the people change and the and the offenses change, but the geography is it's, it's stable and it stays there. So if we can key in on the geography that people like to use. Mm-hmm. And when I first got on, I did something called a risk terrain model. Mm-hmm. And we looked at the Thousand Islands here are very broken up and there's lots of routes to take, but we looked at the lighting on a tower, blinking light for a cell tower. If the waterways are navigable. If you can't take a boat with a three-foot draft through this channel, maybe they would opt for something else. Just geographical attractors that would allow us to kind of focus our limited resources now to an area that we might be more apt to apprehend the the folks crossing the border. So I'm always banging on the table, geography, geography. So our data points come from their cell phone analysis mostly. And if they have their 
geolocation turned on for their WhatsApp messages or their regular messages. We get a lot from that. That is an interesting uh, task because you realize that they're trying to get from point A to point B. As, as you mentioned, they're coming from Canada and they're trying to get to either New York City or maybe Boston and investigating, researching all the various ways that they could do that and getting into the terrain of, of you know, either plane, trains, automobile, boats, all the different ways that they could do that and seeing what the likelihood of them using any one of those modes of transportation mm -hmm. and then so then i guess how do you like supervising this thing then and then like what are your goals so i'm currently in an acting supervisory role a temporary mm -hmm. promotion they call it mm -hmm. and my first weekend it, it's been pretty crazy to be honest <laughs> oh this is only your first week yes absolutely oh you didn't mention that oh geez all right so, so so far, work, so good. <laughs> yeah, the workflow does not seem to stop. And we've got five agents in the intelligence unit that we're managing at the moment. Uh -huh. And yes, it's a different it's a different bear. My only concern is it's, it is pulling me away from the analysis side that I do enjoy. So I'll try to get as much of that as I can in coordination and in parallel with the management, management side if I can. Yeah. Hmm. I, I guess what do you... Is there a data source or a tool or or the like that you wish you had or something that's maybe maybe not even tangible? It's just something that is it's a known it's a known barrier to your analysis. So, uh, like I said, New York is is a lot of things, but immigration friendly they have turned away from. So there are certain aspects of technology that. New York State does possess that will not share with us, so that is mm -hmm. one of the barriers we have, and it's it's unfortunate. But we we have liaising with up here. We do a field command group and meet with lots of local partners, and we're able to work our targets within their systems. It just it's a little hiccup, but there's always a way to work around it. Oh, okay. So some of those those toys, for lack of a better word, and tools that you're using down south, you 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 don't have at your disposal up up north. Correct. Hmm. And it's it's state dependent. I got you. Hmm. All right, let's switch back now to the National Guard, right? So because it's the New York National Guard, and you're doing this simultaneously with your job at the Border Patrol this this whole time, is it the classic National Guard where you do one weekend a month, two weeks out of the year? Is that what we're talking about here, or is that a different relationship? arrangement that you have so i believe i'm here today to disrupt your entire model for this <laughs> talk because it is going to be so back and forth but i did 21 and a half years in the traditional national guard uh -huh. with deployments for 9 11 in iraq and then uh, -huh. uh covid and then for the counter drug task force when you join the counter drug task force you go active duty and you're assigned to a task force within the state so that's full full time duty Monday through Friday, and then if you're serving warrants or whatnot, you're you're full time. So you're still obligated to do your weekend portion of the National Guard. So oh, that's wow. always interesting. With your work with the Drug Task Force, then what you're an analyst there. So what types of things are you getting into? What tasks are you doing? So I first have to give props to the leadership for the counter drug program. 
They, they do have a vigorous hiring process. I still can't figure out how I got through, <laughs> but they, they know what they're doing and it's tried and true and, and the changes in the state come and go, but the, the soldiers that are assigned there get so much experience and so much exposure to stuff that they would never see uh, otherwise. So the mentors I had, like uh, Mr. Joseph Fryan, he's an intelligence analyst that I've worked with still, would set you up to take the New York State Department of Criminal Justice Service exam and get you certified as a crime analyst. They would walk you through the training and the, and the study material you have to know to sit for that exam. And they wouldn't throw you to the wolves. There is a portion of that because you just can't avoid it. But you have the National Guard counter drug program that's a criminal analyst phase one. And uh, I attended one out in Washington State, and it was it was wonderful. We learned so much, and uh, I think it was a two-week course, if I recall. So that all the way, they set you up for success. And then you're placed within a drug task force, and you off the streets are now expected to do I-2 charts and <laughs> tell the future and figure out this guy has a blurry picture with his hat backwards and pick him out from the 60,000 people that live in that county. So you do your best, and then you brief like you know what you're talking about. But for that task force, we had 106 felony investigations right out of the gate. And I just had the rare chance of having the good timing to show up as they were wrapping up the targets they were looking into. And I could put together I-2 charts. I could put together target packets. And I got to see it to fruition where they executed all those sealed indictments. All right. All right. And so with it being a task force, is it multi-jurisdictional? So what all jurisdictions are you working with? So this was restricted to the county, St. Lawrence County. Okay. All right. So this is, so, all right. So this isn't like a multi-jurisdictional then. This is just one county. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So this brings us to your analyst badge story then. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works. So for you, it's during this time, it's 2017, and you're working one of these cases you just mentioned. Yes. Like I said, you're you're brand new, and I was an E7 at the time, so I had some military background, but not in intelligence. And I was plopped right into a, a corner room office with one computer and a couple of accesses. And then as it went, I provided intel support to 20 participating law enforcement agencies, and they just, they were happy to get anything, which is very refreshing, but as soon as we put together that first I-2 chart, they they hung it up over the wall. It was great. <laughs> they got a <laughs> kick out of it. But like I said, we had, let's see, 7,000 envelopes of heroin, $102,000 in currency, lots of handguns, some shotguns, and it was multi-agency. And I got a lot of exposure to different participating agencies and, and the people that I would work with in the Border Patrol side and then work with afterwards. So that was quite a takedown for that county in itself. It did have ties to other county, but we executed those warrants at different times. So, But over the course of 48 hours, I believe, 106 warrants were served and they scooped up 104. I think two were outstanding and had left the state. Oh, so that's, it's rare that you get into something like that right out of the gate, mm -hmm. but it was oh, a huge learning experience. Yeah. So, and what were some takeaways for you? Because as you said, you're just starting, you're doing these link charts, you're probably crossing a bunch of lines and throwing a bunch of stuff on this chart and it's messy and you're just doing trial by fire. So what did you learn, learn coming out of this? So I learned that investigators, no matter what the agency they're in, don't really know what they want. <laughs> you provide them with a slide deck that is just flooded with information and like, okay, I can't understand any of that. So mm -hmm. I learned to parse it out 
give them the bottom line up front. That's some military stuff too. And show them what's important and what's actionable now or within the next week, because they're flooded with so much information and emails and tipsters and leads that they're tracking down and family stuff too. So you have everything coming at you. And especially if you're up on a case with us, you're on a wire and you're doing surveillance, they have a lot of things to pay attention to. So if you can, I always say, put it like at an eighth grade level and brief mm-hmm. it that way. They'll eat it up and they'll they'll know that when they come back to you for the next briefing that you'll have just the most important information. All right. So you have enough information as you're summarizing and drawing your conclusions, doing your analysis. You have enough information there to to tell the story and to show them what's going on. To a point and then asking a lot of questions because I came in the middle of an investigation, so I had to get caught up within weeks prior to the the search warrant. So just harassing the crap out of these guys, getting their information, (laughs) and then being able to put it on a a chart to kind of show, they know the links in their head, but just making it visual, it helps. All right. So how was this particular group, since you like the geography aspect, what was their routine? What was their route in terms of how they were transporting the drugs? So that was... Again, major routes of egress from the large built-up cities. So we have Syracuse that's south of us. And I was a major, major proponent of that. They would shoot north to the, the smaller villages, but had some demand for some heroin and drugs. And then they would shoot back south. And there's, we're on Amish country up here. I don't know if you knew that, but a lot of back roads and a lot of two tracks and unpaved roads. So if you want to get up here, deliver your product, get paid and get back, you're probably going to use one of four routes. Now, was it just normal vehicles that they were using, or were they using any businesses or vehicles as a front? Not so much with the drug side and the, the, during the counter-drug program. The immigration side's a little different. Hi, I'm Matthew Zakarowitz, and I have something for you to think about. Be grateful for what you have. The grass is rarely greener on the other side. Hi, I'm Kyle Stoker, and I'm encouraging you to vote in the IACA elections. Between August and September, you have the opportunity to vote for your candidate. So make sure you go to the IASA website and vote because our membership has a voice in who leads the organization and you want to make sure that your voice is heard. Thank you very much. So this is Sam and I want to let you know that it's okay to talk to strangers. Obviously not if you are four or if you're walking alone at night or in the woods But in general, if you're just out in your day-to-day life or you're traveling or whatever, talk to somebody, talk to strangers. It makes you a more interesting person because it gives you more perspective on life. Everyone is walking around with an interesting story. So many people will defy your expectations when you, you see someone and you make certain assumptions about them, whether they're conscious or unconscious. I love the moment when you realize you were wrong. It's a great feeling, and I think it makes your life richer in general. You know, if you're too shy, then maybe just read Humans of New York. That might help you to to understand other people's experiences. But I'm just here to say, don't not talk to strangers. As maybe you look back, right? Maybe if you're continuing to use I2, like what's your overall review of the i2 product i actually used a program called palantir back in the day and that's what i initially got trained on and then we went to i2 as well 
Mm-hmm. And then when I left that program, Palantir was no longer available. But I, I did enjoy Palantir. It was a little bit more easy to manipulate, I guess. But I actually have gotten to use i2 in their timeline. It's a snappable timeline to show their movement of the targets that we have. I've been using that quite a bit. But the i2 chart, you just, it's tried and true. It's been used all over the place. And people like to see it. And it's good for briefing. Yeah. Yeah. It's been so long since I worked on it it's what you mentioned the timeline that was my always my biggest pet peeve with i2 <laughs> because if you have this timeline and especially if you want to print it out that i didn't like the fact that the, at least when i was using it we're talking about the early aughts that you couldn't either snake it or have a stack your timeline maybe by year Mm-hmm. And it always drove me crazy that I couldn't do that because instead of printing out on my 36 inch pro- plotter one line in which I would have to use <laughs> a ton of plotter paper to do that, I would like to have broken up maybe by year and say, okay, from top to bottom, there it was. And then you can have you use more of the paper, right? <laughs> so. I don't even know if people print it on plotters anymore, but that's what we used to have to do. We do, and that's definitely the the operations NCO side of how I personally do it. But I have tried to ingest data into I2 to create a timeline, and I've not been successful. So I build it from scratch, and I, like I said, bottom line up front, just the major points of when they entered the, the country, when they were apprehended, maybe a text message that they threw up, or a welcome to Canada message they received to putting them in in Canada mm-hmm. and really dress it down to that eighth grade level. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hmm. So is it, I mean, I guess from your end, is there anything that you wish I too would do? For what I use it with on a weekly or monthly basis, I think it's, it serves its purpose. It's nice and ancillary to the other products that we put together to brief our superiors and subordinates on. Sure. And you got a chance to use PenLink too, right? Yes, we still use it uh, to this day. Yeah. How do you um, feel about that one? I think it's wonderful if you get ties to other cases. We are so disjointed with the networks we're trying to take down that there's no connections as of yet. So it's a little frustrating. Yeah, that's another one that I haven't used in a really long time. I mean, I see them at conferences and they've been in the news recently with uh, merging or buying up. What was it? Cobwebs, I think. I can't Geotime? remember. Geotime. It was Cobwebs and Geotime. Was it Cobwebs and Geotime or? I got that all confused, but they, you know, so it, I do see them from time to time. It's been quite a long time since I've, I've used, used pen link though. So, but anyway, it's, it's still the same process that you're doing telephone toll analysis or some, some kind of analysis there, communication analysis, right? Correct. And that's, like I said, the frustration comes from so many different players in Mexico tapping people to be their drivers to come up to pick up aliens that have recently crossed it. I'll get a hit and I'll get excited and I'll run a report and it ends up being a 1-800 number for um, Verizon Wireless or something like that. So yeah. we haven't found a connection yet. Oh, yeah, no. So I guess, yeah, that's it's only as good as the your database, right? In terms yes. of identifying the telephone numbers or the, the products that are involved. Hmm. All right. Good. So I thought I wanted to take this time. We'll come back to the Border Patrol now. And I guess I, I just uh, wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, talk a little bit more about the Border Patrol as it relates to being more intelligence led, because they are hiring. 
you're on a recruiting track a little bit there. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about the the changes that you've seen and what the Border Patrol is doing today as opposed to what it's been doing the last couple of decades. So it's just my personal opinion and just observing the, the direction that Border Patrol and typical law enforcement is going to the intelligence-led policing. Sworn law enforcement officers cost their agencies a lot of money. They get hurt, they have pensions, they have a lot of overtime that they pay out. Mm -hmm. And I think, this is just Josh talking, but if <laughs> you get an analyst, and I, I argued this too, that they are very underpaid for what they do. If you have an analyst that does not require a pension and overtime and um, does not get hurt on the job as much as a law enforcement guy does, that they would lean more towards that in their department so they can place that limited resources, which a guy with a badge and a gun, on onto a spot to make an arrest. I think that's kind of where they would trend to go. And just having the infrastructure to have intelligence to place their agents there, I think that's that's kind of where we're going. And AI might come into that a little bit too, but the throwing people at it, the old adage since 1924, the Border Patrol had agents on horseback were within sight of the next agent on the line. I think that's kind of going away and it's, I'm mm -hmm. seeing it being more intelligence led. Yeah. Cause you are actually a sworn officer, right? And, but that, and you're in that situation, you're, you are unique in, in terms of your position. Yes. I think we are a rarity. We have our, our local Adirondack chapter meetings and I, myself and one other gentleman are the only sworn analysts that show up. It is rare and you have to be an intelligence position like I am to actually get to do the analyst side. But yes, we are sworn and we are uphold the duties and we have the responsibilities of regular agents. So if I identify a target and we go out in the field to try to take it down, I'm I badge in the gun and I can make the arrest just like anyone else. But they, they've had the foresight to pull people off the line to do the analysis because if you're doing both, both are going to be done poorly. So mm -hmm. they pull us off and then we are able to do the analysis and then and put the uniformed agents on that site. Okay. All right. So then I guess for those that might be listening and might be interested in in an analyst position with Border Patrol, what advice for them would you have? I'd say go for it. <laughs> <laughs> it is a stepping stone agency. That's that's how it's been described. I will I can give some credence to that. You are a federal law enforcement officer that are now in the system, and you'll attend Fletzy, Georgia, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, or I'm sorry, New Mexico. Border Patrol goes to New Mexico, but you are sworn and you're a federal agent, and you can start making your way into other agencies. I will say that Border Patrol, even in the intelligence side, is not a member of the intelligence community. So if you are interested in joining the infantry of law enforcement, Border Patrol is where it's at, but I would tell you that you have so many areas of opportunity once you're in, and even nationwide. People can't really wrap their head around. We are in every state on the northern and southern border, even internally. In Washington, D.C., we have resident agents in the interior states, and we also have people in Ireland and Toronto and all over the world. Yeah. So, well, just like all the other analyst jobs out there, I'm sure it's going to be pretty competitive. So do you have any any advice on things, tips and tricks on going through the hiring process? Don't do drugs. <laughs> That's, I think, and I'm not a recruiter, like I said, but the biggest thing holding people up, if they're in a, a state where marijuana is legal, it is still a oh. Schedule One substance in the federal government's eyes. So. That will knock yeah. you out pretty quick. Oh, that's interesting. 
Okay. Other than that, be prepared to move. Be prepared to go to some places that some people don't want to live in the southern border. That's your first taste. The, the Border Patrol will surely send you down to the southern border. Gotcha. I gotcha. Huh. I would think, I would think too, like stalking people online would help you <laughs> hone your skills, know the, know the geography, right? You're, as you said, you're a big proponent of geography. So study mm -hmm. your geography. I think I'm doing a horrible job of selling it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> because when you say geography, especially I think to an analyst or maybe even anybody, it, they might automatically think either the map, they might think of, oh, the computer, they might think of Esri, they might think of Google Earth, they might think of the GPS on their phone, mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily thinking about the terrain. And it's I think that's, that's an aspect that it seems like common sense, but until you started, my head was going through all that until you mentioned terrain. It's such a huge factor, especially in Border Patrol, but in any jurisdiction, I would say that the terrain, and I would, you know, challenge people to look up risk terrain modeling. There's lots of videos out there and training, but it, it is like even to say that the north sea, northeast side of most municipalities are where most of the crime and drugs come from. Strange. They really can't figure out why, but <laughs> it's all geography and the, like i said the people change and the, and the offenses change but the the actual place on the earth and, and the time they don't change it's pounding on the desk again and i'm preaching all right no that's that's good that's good all right <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about ialia now and as i mentioned in your intro you are the regional president for the anirandic chapter and so i guess uh what are your plans and what are your goals? So this was, I've tried to ask around. I haven't really got a definitive answer, but there was a chapter in New York at some time ago. I had spoken with a man in uh, New York City and he and I were going to stand it up and he actually got promoted out of position. So it kind of fell to me and I said, all right, well, let's, let's give it a shot. Mm -hmm. Reached out to the international group and said, we'd like to start a chapter. And they were very, very supportive and just started pinging my network and getting a hold of analysts and we we kicked it off so it's called the adirondack chapter it's selfishly up here in the northeast <laughs> um, we are not in new york city i just want to put that out there mm -hmm. there are great people in new york city but we are as far as you can get from the city so it's hard to get some analysts that are uh, embedded in there in long island up to up to see us it's it's difficult but the adirondack mountains is a, a area in the northeast new york state that's a, a giant state park, one of the biggest state parks in the, in the country. There are 46 high peaks in the Adirondack State Park. And as part of our recruiting and, and getting people involved, we've developed a career experience inventory with 46 high peaks of the analyst career. And oh. we're implementing, it's called a patching ceremony. So we're bringing some military side into it. Mm -hmm. um, if you get 46 of these career experience inventory tasks, we're going to have a patching ceremony for you. And uh, at one of our quarter, quarterly meetings, we'll call you up front present you with a patch and then name off, rattle off some of the tasks that you've done for your task force or your crime analysis center. Um, and that's kind of the goal short term and long term. I hope to pass it off to an actual analyst who's in an analyst position in the future and get myself out of that pres presidential role. So just give an example of the task and the patch that, so, that you would assign or one an analyst that would achieve that. Yeah, I probably should have given a little better context, but they have the 46 high peaks, as I mentioned. 
if you climb all of them, you end up with being called the, the 46 club, the 46ers. <laughs> so they have their own specific patch for that, for climbing those high peaks. And we've mirrored that design to the Adirondack chapter of ILEA. And some of those tasks include building a link analysis chart, drafting a subpoena, conducting a spatial analysis or geographic analysis. If you jump on a T3 wiretap, if you publish an intelligence product, what else we got? Develop a collection plan, identify an intelligence gap. Okay. It's, right. And we've got 87 total tasks. So if you get to 46, you get a patch. All right. All right. Is in, Has anybody got all 46? Yes. We've got a lot with more. And we just kicked this off. So I've got five analysts that have turned in their Adirondack uh, master list. And they are to be patched as soon as the patches show up. The other portion of this is, I, I think it's wonderful, is they're tracking their tasks throughout their career. And they get to see other tasks that analysts do that they may not have encountered yet or even thought of attempting. And uh, they can start going down the rabbit hole of, okay, what is a T3 wiretap? Can I get on one and can I experience it? All right. And then for the chapter, what's the what's the reach? What's the jurisdiction? Because you mentioned uh, New York. I mean, obviously, it's probably New York, but what what analysts are make up your chapter? We are attempting to reach the entirety of New York State, mm -hmm. and we have not incorporated a, a digital version, a, a Teams environment. So it's all in person at the moment. We have people from Ontario and Quebec that join us. We have people from uh, just north of New York City have attended Albany, out west towards Buffalo, Niagara Falls. So it's it's getting to be whoever can make it is, is showing up. We had right out of the gate, the second meeting, we were up to 15, 17 people. So. All right. Good deal. And certainly looking at doing training and is there particular needs that you're seeing for training for these analysts? I'd say it varies. They all deal with different things at different centers that they work at but we've had yeah speakers come in and and teach on some cell hawk analytics or some program that they use that they found success in and the members the board members that we have are just phenomenal i have three ladies that work with me and make my job so easy <laughs> so i've got julie julie horn as the vice president and i've got sarah laranjo as our financier and Miss Kim Robertson up in Canada, she's our secretary, and they just pump out products and assist with everything. It's it's crazy to have that kind of help. One issue that I hear a lot of from analysts or e and even managing analysts is that some it can be depending on where you're at and what what agency and whatnot you're working working for, but retention retention can be difficult you go through all this training you go through all this stuff people are going on to to other things so i mean i guess what are some of your ideas on on keeping keeping those employees and improving retention i i side with the analyst that wants to improve their career you know constant and never-ending improvement i i love that phrase i make it a point when we do these quarterly meetings to meet with the leadership of the of the crime analysis center if possible and highlight what they do for them and the taskings that they're got and how usually they're they're typically understaffed and they are given a lot of a lot of work so we discussed that earlier that burnout is is a part of that but they sometimes don't see the the weight that they carry and the, the task load that they have and the amount of work that they provide and, and information to these crime analysis centers so that's my first stop is to talk to that director or uh, whoever's in charge and say, you, you need to realize what you've got here in your 
in your coffers and pay them well and then don't overwork them because analysis just is physically draining. You you burn a lot of calories using your brain sometimes. <laughs> so for the turnover, I always like people building up their skills and moving on. But if you can keep them in-house and have that experience, I, I think that's always the goal. All right. Good deal. All right. So let's get some advice now. So what advice would you have for analysts, either maybe some advice for new analysts or maybe even advice for experienced analysts? I would I would have to say make your skill set learning new skill sets. I think I've heard that before on analyst talk <laughs> or it just popped in my head, but make that your skill set of learning new skill sets because it's constantly changing. And if you could absorb as much as you can, but because you're always going to go to different tools and different resources and different databases, um, mm -hmm. just start building that repertoire of, okay, I can go over here for this, or I have uh, a whole PowerPoint for target packets. I think I'm 60 pages long now with links and my login information right there. So I just go line by line, like a checklist. Okay. I'm going to check this database for this target, next database, next database. So build that skill set of building yourself a, a, a go by and then other skill sets you could bring in because you never know which one's going to hit. Some may deliver and return nothing. The next one should have all the, all the information that your uh, investigators need. Yeah, definitely. I like it. Be resourceful. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to know how to do everything, but know how to get things done. So if you don't know it personally, at least know the person to go to that can help you get it done. And secondly, I would say networking. That is... I have the personality. If I go out and do a meeting and, and do a presentation, it takes me two days to recover. That's just how I <laughs> how I operate. I have to force myself to network and get to talk to people because that's that is the intangible. You get so much from that and just being able to make a phone call. And we can't do this ourselves. There's no way we could do it. Good. Very good. All right. Well, let's uh, finish up with personal interest then. And as I again, as I mentioned in your intro, you play the bagpipes. And I try. <laughs> so how did you become a bagpiper? In the cold, dark, negative 30 degree winters of Montana, sometimes it gets a little slow. So I picked up a practice chanter, it's called, and I watched a thousand hours of YouTube videos probably and <laughs> taught myself how to play a rudimentary version of bagpipes. I then tried out and made the U.S. Border Patrol traveling pipes and drums team. So I actually got to do President Trump's inaugural parade in Washington, D.C. So that's the highlight of my bagpipe career. But it's, they say it takes seven years to learn and it expires very quickly and your muscles do get weak for playing that instrument. But it's it's been very, very challenging and very, very fun. So where are the pressure points physically, right? Because obviously you're, you're blowing in there, but you're using your hands and everything else. So where... Do you, you may know, like maybe after you're done playing, what was sore when you first were starting to play? It's, it hits people different depending on how you hold it, but I always feel it in my lats and your, I think they're called your buccal muscles where you blow into the blowpipe that will mm -hmm. tire very quickly. So it's, it's a workout and they have something called Peabrook, which is very, very long tunes that are 18 minutes, sometimes long. Oh. And you work, you work up to that and you just go and go and go and go, but it, it'll knock you out. <laughs> 18 minutes that's a that's probably a short one they're just long oh. drawn out musical pieces that i've seen guys play them and their eyes are buzz, bulging out of their face and their heads purple and oh. it's funny to watch oh man so do you still play today yes i was practicing in a cemetery yesterday and realized how rusty i'd become 
Oh, man. Now, do you have a, a favorite song that you like to play? I'm privy to The Bells of Dunblane and Sugan. I'm more of the funeral solemn tunes leaning. A lot of people have the upbeat reels and jigs, but Sugan and Bells of Dunblane, and I also like Flowers of the Forest. All right. All right. So we are going to play a little bit of a recording of you uh, playing the bagpipes. So here's you playing the bagpipes by a tank, which is awesome. <laughs> and uh, so let's just take a listen. So, as you mentioned, like some people will find that uh, amusing and some <laughs> people will find it like torturing cats. Yes, you either <laughs> there's three camps. It makes you cry uncontrollably, hate them, or just love the sound of them. Oh, that's interesting. And so you are playing the whole time. So obviously you're not blowing into the, to the bagpipes the whole entire time. So there's obviously some breathing techniques that go on as as this thing is playing because it'll play a constant sound even though obviously you can't breathe into it constantly. Yes, and that's one of the biggest tenets of of good bagpiper is that constant steady pressure and which is very very hard to to master. I still haven't got it. So very good. It's it's funny. I I went to Edinburgh University in Pennsylvania uh, Edinburgh is the Fighting Scots, so <laughs> the bagpipes were played all the time, and so I have this fond memory of bagpipes because it makes me think of college. <laughs> and so, but I don't. I, when we were talking yesterday in the prep call, I mean, I'm talking thinking that. So I don't know if the rest of the audience is thinking, "Oh man, that that's just <laughs> nails on the chalkboard." But for me, it just brings back all the different memories that I had of college. And then I'll get people after a funeral that will say something along the same lines, like that. My grandfather had someone play at his funeral, and it's it's a I. I can't say enough of the opportunity sometimes to participate in these funerals. And it's a, it's a crazy, wonderful touch to add to a, a normal funeral. Very good. And what was that the song that you were playing there? So I haven't played it in a while. I'm going to say dawning of the day, but I'm probably incorrect. All right. All right. Very good. All right. So our last segment of the show is words to the world. This is where you, you can promote any idea that you wish. Josh, what are your words to the world? Uh, for analysts. I've got a couple, but uh, I think you should know your worth and work to push up your salary and benefits package to match your, your worth. Be a proponent for yourself and tell people exactly what you're doing, because sometimes 
the product gets scrubbed to the point, like I said, the eighth grade level, and there are days and days and days of analysis and preparation behind it that they may not see. But if you get the opportunity to brief what you do and, and just be a salesman for yourself. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Josh. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Thank you. Get to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.